Hello, and welcome to the EPC's sixth episode of our podcast series where we delve deeper into EU affairs and connect the dots between politics, policies, and people. My name is Rebecca Kastermans, and I'm the head of communications at the European Policy Center. After a marathon council meeting, EU leaders finally settled on a new leadership team for the bloc. Picking German Defense Minister Ursula von der Leyen as Commission President, Belgian Prime Minister Charles Michel as President of the Council, IMF's Christine Lagarde as President of the European Central Bank, and Spanish Foreign Minister Joseph Borrell as new High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy. In this episode, EPC Director of Studies Yanis Emanoulidis lifts the curtain on what was going on at the summit and explains how van der Leyen became the Commission President candidate everyone could sort of get behind. He also talks about what this means for the Spitzenkandidate process, the lessons learned, and what will happen next. So for a while, it seemed as if the, the Timmermans roster would make it in the end and that the European heads of state were very close to a compromise. But then things fell apart rather suddenly. And on the third day of the council, the name von der Leyen appeared out of nowhere, it seems. And it quickly became clear that she had the support of a majority of, if not all, EU leaders. So, Janis, I guess my first question is, how did we get here? Well, it was a long process, and I think that in order to understand what the outcome is, you need to effectively go back when the Spitzenkandidaten were nominated, um, when it was clear that uh, Weber would be Spitzenkandidat of the European People's Party, Timmermans of the Socialists, Vestager of the Liberals. Um, there were already some criticism towards Manfred Weber at the time. There were also some already at the time saying that he doesn't have enough executive experience. Now you can ask as to whether this is a valid argument or not, but it was the argument which at the end of the day made it clear that he would not become commission president, that he did not command a majority in the European Council, but also that he didn't have a majority in the European Parliament. Um, then we had uh, the uh, short-lived compromise of uh, Timmermans becoming uh, president of the European Commission, which surprised many. Um, in the beginning, many thought that it were the Eastern Europeans who were very critical, but I think most opposition came from the European People's Party, from the Conservative Party mm -hmm. themselves, because they didn't want to accept that a socialist, a Timmermans, uh, would become commission president, they were saying, we want that post. Um, some arguing it should be Weber, others arguing even if it's not Manfred Weber, but the conservative were saying, we want that post. Uh, and that made it difficult to find a sufficiently big enough majority in the European Council. And that's where then the question came up, so what potentially could be a compromise? Um, and the idea of having Ursula von der Leyen becoming commission president popped up. Now, I say popped up, although already in 2018, mm -hmm. last year, there were some speculations that um, uh, Ursula von der Leyen might come to Brussels. Um, a lot of these speculations were more oriented towards NATO and as to whether she might become secretary general of NATO, but there were some who were indicating that she might come to Brussels to become commission president with most including myself, felt was not a high likelihood. Um, so now in the final moments, hours uh, of the European Council, 
a meeting, the idea came up of Ursula von der Leyen, and she, that idea was supported by a big amount of heads of state and government in the European Council mm-hmm. uh, for different reasons. And then you had to put together the portfolio. And if you look into the tableau of EU leaders, it is a very typical European compromise, reflecting the different political parties, uh, reflecting um, the fact that you now have two females, um, that you have an ECB president who has support in key countries. um, So she's a good compromise candidate uh, with high qualities. Um, you even have Timmermans and Vestager reflected in the compromise given that they shall become uh, vice, vice presidents of the European Commission. So it is a very uh, European compromise, but there are things lagging. Like, for example, there's no um, person coming from Central and Eastern Europe, which for many is a surprise because many have thought that that would ha- be reflected in the tableau. It isn't. But if you follow the process, you understand why that's the case. And... Uh you say that most of the resistance against Timmermans uh, probably came from the EPP, but that hasn't stopped the Visegrad four countries, or at least um, Hungary and specifically, to claim victory when it came to getting rid of uh, Weber and, uh, and of Timmermans. Why do you think that they agreed so easily to, to, to van der Leyen? Is there something behind there? Maybe is there? I think that from the perspective of those governments, some of those governments in Central and Eastern Europe, especially the one in Warsaw, the one in Poland, and and the one in in Hungary, uh, was that they were obstructing. They did not want Manfred Weber to become commission Mm -hmm. president, um, and they didn't want uh, Timmermans to become commission president. So they were not proactively advocating in favor of something. Mm. They wanted to avoid that some become commission president for their own reasons, um, for the reasons which they have declared. Um, But the reasons which they have declared, I think, uh, fall short uh, because it wasn't because of them they played a role, yes. Uh, Obviously, that was something which people also had in mind. But it doesn't explain why, in the end, uh, it wasn't Timmermans who became commission presidents, because it was opposition from within uh, the conservative uh, party, from in conservative circles in the European Council, in the European Parliament, who were against um, the fact that the socialists would now become the most, would get the most prominent job. So Mm. yes, they were against it, but the true story is that it wasn't just because of them. It was largely because of other reasons that Timmermans did not uh, get the job of commission president. So none of the people in the current package are uh, Spitzenkandidate. So some people say it's a disappointment. Others go as far as saying that it's a slap in the face of the of the European voter, especially since so many parties put a lot of emphasis on it during the campaign. Also, given the increased voter turnout, so do you agree with that assessment? Is that you know undemocratic? Is this going in the wrong direction? Or is the fact that the heads of state and parties were so determined to get their way a sign of a uh, maturing democracy? Well, first of all, it is something where this principle of having Spitzenkandidaten suffered to some degree a blow. Mm. Because at the end of the day, none of the Spitzenkandidaten became commission president. Yes, you have two of them reflected in the composition because they will assume a role in the, in the European Commission with Timmermans and Vestager, um, but at the end of the day, they didn't become commission president. So it is a blow. Mm. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that Europe is undemocratic. 
the fact how they got to this agreement, which still we need to await as to whether uh, Ursula von der Leyen will have a majority in the European Parliament in favor of her. Um, but to get to this tableau, um, you also need to reflect not only um, the majority in the European Parliament, but also the majorities in the European Council. And those in the European Council are also elected politicians with, uh, with democratic legitimacy. And the EU is a complex body which reflects uh, that it is both a union of citizens and a union of states. And this is a moment where that shows itself because, yes, uh, you need to have a majority of the parliament, but you also have to command a majority of those representing member states in the European Council, a big enough majority in order to be able to become commission president. Um, so one can be critical of the system, but to declare that it is undemocratic, I think, would be too short of an analysis. It is much more complex than that. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, um, this is, I think, sometimes, sometimes things we always have to have in mind. The European Parliament could have a majority in the European Parliament, could have said we would like the European Council to nominate someone. They could have shown support for one of the Spitzenkandidaten, but the European Parliament didn't do that. They were not able to agree not only up till now to a political program, but also they were not able up to now or they weren't able to agree um, to someone who they would support, a majority of them who they would support as commission president, because that would have put a lot of pressure on the European Council, on the heads of state and government. Uh, but given that they didn't do that, they left the floor in many ways open to the heads of state and government to take decisions on their own. So that's a missed opportunity for the European Parliament. I think this is a missed opportunity. And I think that if you think of uh, how in future the process should work, um, you need to find ways to make sure that the European Parliament is more under pressure to decide who of the uh, Spitzenkandidaten they are supporting for the for the position of commission president so i think it is a lost opportunity it is also now a question as to whether this will strategically weaken the european parliament in the system we already saw that the 2014-2019 european parliament as a strategic actor in the institutional system was not as strong as previous parliaments now with the fact that uh, we've had uh, this incident and the inability of the European Parliament to form a majority supporting one of the candidates, I think that is from the beginning on something which is uh, undermining the strategic role of the European Parliament and it might have to pay a longer term price for that. But do you still think that the, that the system, the Spitzenkandidaten system, has a future? I think it has a future. Um, it's the second time that uh, the Spitzenkandidaten um, system was used. It worked differently in 2014 because the outcome of the EP elections were very different. You had a majority, a grand coalition big enough in the European Parliament. You had the two uh, lead candidates from the Socialists and the Conservatives, Juncker and Schulz, standing next to each other saying, we are forming a coalition and we're supporting each other and Juncker should become commission president. This time around, it was difficult. It was different. It was more complex. By the way, it was not only two positions, it was five positions. So it was a much more complex situation than it was in 2014. So things worked out differently. Um, and I think that you now also need to take the lessons from today's, from this experience and uh, try to reflect that in an attempt to reform the Spitzenkandidaten system, which I think is here to stay. I don't see that any of the political parties 
will abandon it. And even if one would decide to abandon it, I think others would have a comparative advantage if they stick to it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the system uh, suffered a blow. It definitely needs to be reformed, but it's there to say the genie is out of the bottle mm -hmm. and you cannot now pretend that you can go to a status quo ante and get rid of the system. You need to reform it so that it will work better next time around and then again it might not work perfect and then you will have to reform it again mm. this is how the EU develops it develops over time and it takes experience into account when it changes way the ways how it operates mm. and you mentioned uh, lessons before so what are some of the lessons that we can learn from the last few days well i think that there are many lessons <laughs> yeah. um one lesson Try is to keep a <laughs> one lesson i think is that if you think of a reform of the Spitzenkandidaten system, mm. you need to introduce, I think, transnational lists. Now, you need to think that through. It sounds simpler than it is, because even if you introduce transnational lists, there are a lot of questions you then have to answer. But I think you need that innovation in order to progress with the system. Second, you need to make sure that when political parties nominate their lead candidate, their Spitzenkandidat, that they think the process through, that they are aware that the person they are nominating, especially those parties who have a chance in really winning the race at the end of the day of their candidate becoming commission president, that they think the process through and select the candidate accordingly. Some of the criticism which we've heard vis-a-vis -vis some of the candidates was criticism which shouldn't have come by a surprise. So when selecting the candidates, the lead candidates, the Spitzenkandidaten, they should be more aware of who they are electing. And last but not least, I think there is a big lesson for the European Parliament to be taken from this experience that if they're not able to form a majority, they should not afterwards complain that the European Council takes over. And this is what happened this time around. And that is a lesson which they should be taking. So maybe there's a need to put pressure on themselves so that, they, that the European Parliament puts pressure on itself, that in the future they will be able to decide on a majority supporting one or the other candidate, which then means that the European Council will have to take that into account, given that's reflecting the outcome of the elections, given that it will be reflecting also who did well in the context of the new transnational lists. So that would create pressure on the system in the European Council. And that might also help to avoid some of the host trading which we saw, which are part of the political system of how the EU works. But I think that the system would deserve to function better than it did this time around. Hmm. And uh, I think that um, everyone is wondering now what will happen next because uh, MEP David Maria Sassoli has been elected as president of the, the European Parliament. So as a socialist and an Italian, the EP managed to provide political but not geographical uh, balance because originally um, the council put forward Sergei uh, Stanis Stanishev, uh, who was a former Bulgarian prime minister as, as the EP president. So um, could the package still work, even though parliament seems less than enthusiastic about von der Leyen as, as commission president? I think that there is now, for different reasons, we see a lot of criticism via the uh, nomination of Ursula von der Leyen. There's also criticism vis-à-vis -vis the entire package. Um, and that criticism is not coming from one direction. 
and it's different reasons why decisions are being criticized, decisions taken by the European Council. So there is a good amount of opposition in the European par uh, Parliament, in some parties more than another, but also across parties, uh, across pro-European parties, there's criticism vis-a-vis -vis the decision. However, having said that, I think that uh, up to the moment where the European Parliament in its next session, mid-July, will decide um, on the nominated uh, European Commission president, whether uh, she, Ursula von der Leyen, should be also voted by a majority in the European Parliament, that that majority can be found. Um, Ursula von der Leyen already is actively engaging in, uh, in discussions with the members of the European Parliament. Um, many of them will be asking her also for concessions and policy terms. Others might also be asking for institutional concessions, like the introduction of the transnational list. Um, and she will be conducting these talks with the difficult, with different political families. And I think that will increase support for her. And then the other question is, maybe even more fundamentally, what's the alternative? Um, do you really want to go back to the drawing board in the European Council? Um, the, many in the European Parliament argue we are against the solution because none of the Spitzenkandidaten has become Commission President. But it became clear over the last uh, days or weeks that none of the two Spitzenkandidaten, Weber and Timmermans, had a majority in the European Council. They didn't even command a majority in the European Parliament. So they had no majority. That became clear. So going back and saying we should rerun uh, these lead candidates to become commission president won't work. Mm -hmm. And then there's the third person who wasn't a Spitzenkandidat, but she was a member of the Spitzen team with Vestager. Um, but here the European Council has already taken a decision that uh, Charles Michel shall become, um, will become president of the European Council. He's a liberal. That makes it very difficult now to argue that another liberal should mm -hmm. have a Spitzen position. Um, so I think at the end of the day, given that the, uh, the other alternatives are not more attractive, given that a lot of things will still happen and where also Ursula von der Leyen will try to find compromises with different political parties and fractions and groups, I think that there is a good chance that at the end she will command a, a big enough majority in the European Parliament. Well, that sums it up for now. We here at the EPC will make sure to follow this closely in the months and weeks ahead. In the next episode, I'll sit down with Claire Deret, our head of Social Europe and Wellbeing Program, to talk about social policies at EU level and whether or not they can help to curb the rise of the far right across Europe. So stay tuned. Until then, over and out.